our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing better to do. So listen, here's our show. Welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I am your host, Samantha, a super fan of Stargate, and I am here with Rose, also a super fan of Stargate. And Malika, not a super fan of this episode. Daniel episodes. I didn't think it was going to be your favorite. Before we start, we do want to let you know that we will probably be talking about suicide and drug use and probably addiction. So please use your discretion. Today, we are discussing episode five of season two, Need. We open on a very sunny scene with what looks like Jaffa and priests standing around the dialing home device in front of the Stargate. It looks like they're sending a uh, one of those really old-timey lanterns to the Stargate. SG-1 is hiding in the bushes nearby watching this all go down. Tilk is able to identify that the lantern is containing Nakwada, and SG-1 wants some of that Nakwada. Daniel notices a, a figure walking away. This person's in a gold cloak. For some reason, Daniel decides to follow this figure and O'Neill wishes that he would stop doing that. So does Daniel do this often where he just sees someone and follows them? Well, we've seen Carter do that. And we've seen, I'm sure Daniel does it all the time, like every planet they go to. Tilk seems like the only person who actually stays on task. Everybody else just wanders off (laughs) looking for trouble. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, I would imagine Daniel does. Well, he, you know, he did that in the first episode when they went to Chulak. He just like, Jack's like, okay, let's stay here. And he just like jumps up and says hi to the turtle priests. So Daniel follows the gold cloak into the forest with the rest of SG-1 trailing behind. She removes her, her cloak to reveal a very attractive woman. She closes her eyes and is about to jump off when Daniel grabs her. She cries out and a bunch of Jaffa arrive. There's a bit of a standoff, but eventually SG-1 lowers their weapons and they take him away. So at one point we do get a, a look at this woman standing on the cliff. I guess the camera is at the, uh, the foot of the cliff. This is not a very high cliff. Like if she wants to kill herself, it's not going to happen. She's probably going to maybe break her leg, her arm, and that's it. I think it's symbolic. (laughs) But do you think she was actually going to throw herself over that cliff? I don't think so. Because later she says that she was making like a wish. that This was her final wish for her soulmate to come. And we don't actually see her like step off the cliff. Was Like had he not caught her, she would have fallen though, right? I think so. She was swaying towards the, the cliff. Was this all an act? You know, I was wondering, is this a suicidal gesture? Knowing she wasn't gonna die, but would be injured? Was it like a practice run? Because she doesn't seem all that suicidal later in the episode. Well, yeah. their soulmate arrived and saved her. I mean, I don't know. When you're suicidal, I don't know if soulmates is the thing that knocks you out of it. Usually it's like massive amounts of like counseling and drugs. <laughs> we come back from theme music and SG-1 are being brought into the great hall of the pyramid. This old guy comes out. He starts grabbing at Carter. The camera then pans to O'Neill, and O'Neill doesn't like what he's doing to Carter's hair. 
Uh, there's a reason why Pyrus is, you know, sort of handsy with Carter. And we learned about that later on. They just needed that interaction for her to later say, I was able to not sense anything. It just seemed weird to me. Like it would make more sense for him to go down the line, touching each one. And that's how she figured it out. I think he just went to the woman and started fluffing her hair because she's the woman. Like he probably couldn't have gotten away with that if he started fluffing O'Neill's hair. Well, he's also like old and senile and soulless at this point, right? So SG-1 tries to explain that they're from Earth. Pyrus thinks they're liars and thieves, and he wants to put them in the mine. The daughter looks somewhat bothered by this, but she doesn't say anything. The next scene, we are in the mines, which are surprisingly well lit and open for mines. (laughs) Not that bad, actually. It's, and it's so they do a lot of like underground cave type episodes. This is the same set as prisoners, right? It is yes. exactly the same set. So obviously the king has put some cash down there to make sure that everybody can see what they're mining. But then later we're going to see the actual their actual axes and hammers. And it was like a rock with a couple things of twine on a stick. Like, that's not mining anything. They'd probably be more productive if they actually gave them, like, a hammer. Just a, just a regular Home Depot hammer. It kind of reminded me of those old Smurf shows where they go into the mines and they have these little cartoon hammers that are hammering away at this cartoon rock. Yeah, I mean, if your goal is to have them be super productive because you're afraid of the gold, like, coming and figuring out why you're not productive enough, you'd think they'd give them state-of-the-art equipment to do mining. Maybe that is state-of-the-art equipment on this planet. Carter also reveals that she doesn't think that they are Gaulds because she she doesn't sense a symbiote. She says that she gets this weird feeling around Teal'c now. And O'Neill says, well, everyone does. She thinks she has this feeling because of Jolinar. Last episode, we got the information that her brain has changed on Gamekeeper and they couldn't she couldn't output like the way Daniel and Jack could. So that was like the first reference we had to, to Jolinar. And this is the second, right? So I do like in this season, this the sort of fallout from Jolinar kind of slowly unfurls, where usually they don't, they sort of have standalone episodes. So can Teal'c then tell if there's a, a Gawold about? I don't know if that's consistent. I think he's, he can, if he gets close enough. We don't hear him saying, oh, I felt a symbiont or I did not feel a symbiont. We don't hear him saying that a lot. Maybe he can't tell because he has a symbiont with him all the time. And so he doesn't, his sense isn't as strong. And also his Gawold is immature and it didn't take over his brain and take over him as a person. And Carter didn't have that kind of stuff. She was completely taken over by Jolinar. So maybe that also explains the difference in their ability to sense other gowls. Before we move on to the next part, I don't know why Tilk didn't say, I mean, Tilk hardly says anything in this episode, but the Jaffa markings were all weird. They didn't even resemble any of the markings that we've seen on people's foreheads. These were just like- Sharpies. Draw- yeah. Drawings by Sharpies. Yeah. And is this when Carter also says that they're not real Jaffa? So does that mean that they're humans pretending to be Jaffa or they're Jaffa that they sort of left on this planet and they sort of turned them into their Jaffa? I think they're all fake. I think everybody's just a regular human 
we know that supposedly the king killed the gold leader, the god, he's the god killer. So they probably also killed the Jaffa and just took their outfits and painted <laughs> marking on their forehead and just be like, you're going to be a pretend Jaffa. It's, I mean, it's interesting if they killed the Gould, as we will find out later, if, the, if her father was the God Slayer, that they decided to just replicate this, this society instead of, I mean, I understand that they have to keep sending Nakoda through so that the Gould don't leave them alone, but they could do that without having pretend Jaffa. But they needed someone in the mines working. So there needed to be some kind of structure. Structure with but, an underclass. Yeah, a working class and then an upper class. Right. And then if you're going to have that, you need a security force to enforce it. I don't know if I would call them working class. <laughs> We're like slaves. Slaves. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know, we don't know that all of them are like, we know that prisoners get sent there who are the slaves, but it may not be that all of them are sort of slaves slash prisoners. Some of them may be working class. <laughs> like, like we use prison labor. We also use, you know, working class labor in our society. O'Neill gets mouthy about union violations in the cave and gets a staff weapon to his mouth. They get packed to work and then they hear a horn. Then some really tired looking miners shuffle inside the cave. Are these miners coming back from another mine? No, I thought they were leaving. I thought it was like supposed to be kind of the end of the day and they were all shuffling out. I don't remember whose foot it was, but maybe Daniel's, maybe O'Neill's, they put the chain around. So I think that that signaled like this is the, you can go outside for your five minute food break or something. Okay. So they're taking the chains off for maybe some kind of break, like a, a one minute break or something. Cause they don't get dinner as Carter says later on. Also makes no sense. If you want to increase worker productivity, you should feed them. So they're stronger and work more. They were giving them something that looked kind of like uh, Dr. Pepper or that bucket. In the mud? (laughs) O'Neill did say he's drank worse. I believe it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so they are taking the chains off. O'Neill and Teal'c share a look, and then suddenly they start wailing on the Jaffa. Teal'c throws an axe. O'Neill grabs a staff weapon and fires it at some guards. Daniel just stands there and watches. I guess guess Daniel hurt his leg or something, because at some point he's limping. Like, and, and that's why you couldn't run after them and why the, the rocks fell on him because you couldn't get away fast enough. I'm glad you said that because I thought he was just lagging behind just being his like regular self of I'm not <laughs> going to do much work to do, to get out. Thank you for like uh, blazing the trail for me. I'm going to wait, be the fourth one out. <laughs> so if he's injured, I will give him some points. However, it is too soon to have him crushed under rocks, just like his mommy and daddy. Good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Does this count as a Daniel dies episode? Because if he wasn't revived at the sarcophagus, he would have died. I think Carter said he was still breathing. So that he doesn't, he doesn't, we don't actually see him die. Do we count prisoners as a Daniel died episode? No. Okay. We didn't. So he, there's the, the episodes where he actually dies, like, um, or pretty much dies, like, the serpent slayer and the the fish man and then there's a lot of episodes where he just pretty because very close to dying accident prone fellow so before daniel can escape he is buried in rock o'neill tells teal'c and carter to just go go but some more fake jaffa appear and their escape is thwarted doesn't seem like they would have gotten very far anyway next we're back in the great hall again so I keep saying it's the Great Hall of the Pyramid. 
because it's this huge ass hall and I don't really know where else it would be other than in that pyramid that we saw. Yeah, I called it the throne room because when we first see the king, he's sitting on the throne. And also, what do we know about this planet? There's a pyramid. So we're guessing, is it Egyptian or Mayan, right? And when they first pan around, we see Mayan art on the wall. That's it. The clothing isn't Mayan other than some a couple symbols. Nothing else is Mayan. I thought that that was kind of a wasted opportunity. We see the daughter, Shyla, leading her father, Pyrus. Pyrus says the Nakwada is growing scarce. She pushes a button and the sarcophagus appears. You know, this was the most herky-jerky sarcophagus I've seen in Stargate. Because in the movie, the sarcophagus, it moves very smoothly. But in the TV show, they can't quite emulate that that smooth motion. So it's like... Well, it's old. It hasn't been maintained. So the sarcophagus opens and we see Daniel inside in a dress. Daniel gets out. He looks very confused. Shiloh tells him what's happened since he went to the sarcophagus. She's taking personal responsibility for him. So she warns him not to escape again. And then she gives him his glass circles, aka his glasses. Didn't the sarcophagus like fix his eyes? Not the first time because it fixed him from almost being dead. So it kind of put him back to where he was. And then the next time he was in, and we find out he actually uses it more than one time afterwards. If you are already healthy and what you were before, then it improves you, which is why it fixes his eyes. But I do want to say before he put on his glasses, he looked pretty hot. He had like a solid 10 seconds of looking really good. So I understand why Shayla was like, (laughs) yeah, I do have to say Daniel, he looks objectively hot in this episode, especially when he's, when he has that whole asshole thing going later on with the hair, the hair gel and everything. I think you're telling on yourself, Sam. No, I said objectively hot. I didn't say subjectively. I don't find Daniel attractive. Overall, over the series, he gets way hotter. His haircut gets better and he gets buff at some point because he's all like skinny. He's supposed to be like the skinny, wiry academic type. And then he gets really buff. Oh, did we talk about his outfit? Is this a dress or is this like those huge pants, like gaucho pants or something? I couldn't quite tell, but but it looked like pantaloons. (laughs) Yeah, because when he stepped out, there was definitely a a pant leg cut in the middle so he even though O'Neill later says you're wearing a dress he is wearing like palazzo pants gaucho pants something like that (laughs) yeah wide leg pants so the end of the scene is when they go off skipping into the woods at this point in the episode what are you guys feeling or what's your take on Shyla she doesn't seem like a villain she's a drug dealer an enabler was what I wrote down (laughs) and needy as fuck and codependent as fuck back to the mines Tilk and O'Neill are banging their axes against the rocks Carter is trying to convince O'Neill that it wasn't his fault that Daniel was hurt and O'Neill drinks the Dr. Pepper or what basically looks like mud back to the forest Daniel and Shyla are strolling through the forest Uh, Daniel tries to convince her to help his friends but then Shyla tells him that Daniel is her destiny yikes (laughs) Daniel then goes, which is exactly what you want a man to do when you tell him that he's your destiny. 
Why doesn't he tell her that he's married? Maybe he's worried she'd put him back in the mines. Or maybe he wanted to flirt a little bit. Well, what's interesting is that he picked up on her. I mean, she was very, she was laying it on very thick. So it's not like he can't, he didn't realize what was going on. But it's interesting that he didn't at that point, because he still had all of his senses, use that to manipulate her to get the team out. Well, I've had men not tell me that they're married. Me too. (laughs) Usually it's because they want to get in your pants, right? He didn't seem like he wanted to get in her pants. In fact, he rejected her advances. He seemed very uncomfortable. I'm going to say it's because he needed to, to get his friends out. And if he told her he was married, she might have either gotten angry or just been like, okay, well, next, go back to the mines. I'll find somebody else and would have missed their chance. But then play it up. I mean, he he knows how to be manipulative. They all know how to be manipulative to get what they need. And he knows that he needs to get his team out. If you're not going to say I'm married, why aren't you also being manipulative and being like, oh, I'm probably that great man from beyond the sun that your mom told you about. And your mom also, she left out the part about letting my team out because they have to be my best man and uh, one of your bridesmaids. Back to the mines. Daniel appears in his royal robes as the rest of SG-1 are mining. He tells him about Shyla. So when Daniel says that Shyla has a crush on him, Carter and O'Neill kind of exchange this fun little look. He also tells them that he uh, was revived from the sarcophagus. Uh, but Daniel does tell them that he's working on getting them released. He mentions dinner and a feast and Carter's mouth starts watering. This is Tilk's largest portion. He does this thing where when Daniel is talking all this mess and he he raises his eyebrow and he's like he's full of bullshit and that's that that was like a winning performance honestly i don't know why they don't let tilt do more stuff because he did more with that eyebrow than daniel did the in the entire episode i think yeah i i they really underutilized tilt in the first few seasons it, it gets better he gets sort of more, his character grows a little bit, but unless it's like a teal episode that he never gets to do much. He's kind of just there as the muscle and the, and the stoic one and all that. We cut to the feast in the pyramid. Shyla asks Pyrus to tell Daniel about his background. And I think Pyrus just grunts and says he killed a gold and that's it. Right. And that's why he's called the God Slayer. So he's like 800 years old. Is that it? 700 years old. How old is she? I know she says I'm relatively young by comparison. And she said she hasn't needed it to extend her life. So she's within a normal human lifespan. She looks what, like 30, right? So is she like 60? No, she, well, she's not 60 because she didn't use a sarcophagus. She, she uses the sarcophagus. No, she she she's addicted to it. She, she is. I thought she said she didn't need to use it. She said she hasn't needed it to extend her life. So I'm thinking that she's still within a a normal human lifespan, but she still uses it because she, because he gets her off of it at the end, right? Here he like makes her go cold turkey. So, so I'm like, is is she 30 and she just uses it to get high? And, or is she like 60? I don't know. I took her comment to mean she never used the sarcophagus. No, she definitely uses it because at the end, that that's her, that's why he makes her destroy it at the end. And he tells her it's going to be rough. That's not how I interpreted it. You don't think she uses it? No, it felt to me like she was putting her dad in there constantly and she wasn't using it because she didn't need it yet. At the end, when Daniel was like holding her after she had destroyed it, 
his reaction to her was more like, you're not going to going to be able to use this to extend your life. You're not going to be able to live as long as your dad. You're going to have a normal life. Yeah, but she tells him, like when she puts him in there for the first time, she's like, you're going to feel amazing. Like it's it's like a drug dealer saying this is how it's going to be good and it's really good. Right. And maybe she doesn't use it that often. Right. And she just uses it like, quote, recreationally. But I think she's definitely addicted to it. It's a gateway sarcophagus. <laughs> so he, so if he's 700 and she's like a normal person who looks her age, he had her when he was 700 years, 670 years old. Well, maybe the sarcophagus is like Viagra. Well, maybe he's had multiple wives, multiple children. I'm assuming her mother was not 600 years old. Right. She did die. So they must not have used their sarcophagus on her as much as they have on her dad. If it was an illness, the sarcophagus would have cured her. If it was an accident, the sarcophagus would have cured her. Maybe the dad killed her. We're going to find out that the sarcophagus also makes you lose your soul. So yeah. maybe he got paranoid and killed her and wouldn't, or she did have an accident and he wouldn't let her use it. So Daniel is figuring out Pyrus's backstory kind of out loud, which is angering Pyrus. So Pyrus walks off sort of in disgust and says he's going to kill the friends again, SG-1. Shyla reminds him that no, he just wanted to put them in the mines instead. So he's losing it on top of being soulless. Yeah, there's definitely some kind of dementia going on with the dad. So Shyla and Daniel now have a nice little interlude. Daniel starts to, to figure out that she's stalling a bit because she wants him to stay. She then kisses him. He does not resist. And he definitely kisses her back. But he doesn't seem to enjoy it too. Like this is almost like a duty for him. Like he knows that he's going to have to play along in order to get SG-1 out. I think he likes a good kiss regardless. There was no passion in this kiss though. <laughs> it's very dry. Well, yeah, he's not in love with her. And it's kind of a means to an end for him at this point. I agree with you. It's not passionate from him, but he does kiss her back. Well, he doesn't, you know, throw her across the room or anything. <laughs> no, that's later. <laughs> that's Dr. Frazier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then Shyla says, maybe you're still not fully recovered. And she convinces him to go back into the sarcophagus. She says, you'll feel so much better, better than you will have ever felt and to trust her. That is drug dealer talk, right? She has definitely gone in there and she's like, it's good shit, man, do it. And she gets him hooked. So do you think she's aware of the uh, addictive effects of the sarcophagus? Yes. Later she says when he, she lets him leave and she says, he'll come back to me. He can't live without me now. But does she know that it takes away your soul? Probably not. But what I don't get is we don't know her motives yet. All we know is that she wants to marry him or whatever. She seems a little manipulative because she's stalling to keep him with her. Why would you get back in the sarcophagus? She doesn't necessarily need to let you out, you know, for years. She could leave him in there and let the team toil away and die and then let him out. Like, you know, she's a little bit shady. You don't know where this is going. But why would you get back in the sarcophagus? I don't get it. Maybe Daniel is starting to feel it at this point. I mean, it's, it could be a trap. I mean, it is a trap, but like a long-term trap that we're going to find out later. But it could be literally a trap. It could lock him in there and keep him in there for years and years. 
isn't there like an exit button? Because like when they're in it, like when she uses it, when you're done, you like pop it open from the inside. What's that called? Because a lot of cars have it. In their like trunk. The trunk they have it now. So you yeah. can't get like, like locked in your trunk anymore. <laughs> the good old days of storing people in your trunk are over. <laughs> That's why you tie them up. I mean, come on. <laughs> But every time we've seen the sarcophagus open, the person appears to be asleep, unconscious, coming out of something, and they slowly rise up. So we've not had a sarcophagus that opens and the person's awake already and like kicking to try to get out or something. But, but like, remember when Daniel was on the end of the other episode or he's on the, the gold ship in the six minutes between the ship exploding, he goes into the sarcophagus for to get healed up from getting shot. It can't be that it was took him like five minutes. He must have been like setting it like he must have after four minutes been like, OK, this is as good as I can afford because he wasn't totally healed after that. Can you set it from the outside? Is it kind of like a sauna or something? And you put on the timer and you get inside and it closes and then it opens when you're, you're done with your spits. <laughs> I think it has to have some settings because how, like either you sort of are aware of time passing. I mean, Hathor was in there for like 5,000 years, but hers could have also been set as like a hibernation chamber because she was, she was forced in there. I think you can like tell it when you want to get out. Yeah. Like a tanning bed or something. Back to SGC. Daniel provides a very terse message to Hammond. Status is the same and SG-1 needs more time. So how much time has passed now? We find out that he's been gone like, what, three days? Something like that. And used it, what, like five times in three days? He Didn't he say used five it. or six times? He probably well, he used said, it more than that. Yeah, no, he said uh, ten, times? Nine or 10 times. So he's using like five times a day, three, three times, three or more times a day. And also we don't see when Hammond was first surprised of the situation, but this is not the first message. So I'm going to say they've been down there maybe like a week or so. We're back to the mines. And this time we get, what do we want to call it? Daniel, strung out Daniel, drugged up Daniel. He's a meth head. Isn't isn't he acting like a meth head? Okay. Meth head Daniel. He just seemed really happy to me. Very confident too. (laughs) He's confident. No, but he's, he's, erratic i mean like let's think about which drug this simulates right my feeling is it's not an opiate or it's not like a a downer like heroin or or opiate i think it's like meth even though he's not quite as jumpy as your average meth head because of the erratic mood swings which is a very pronounced feature of people under the influence of meth it felt to me at least at this point it felt more like steroids I have seen uh, after school special and that was about, <laughs> was it Ben Affleck who was in that after school special where he had, was having road, roid rage, but it felt kind of like that. I don't feel like I've known enough people heavily abusing steroids to the point where I can like identify a specific way that a person acts. I know I have known roid raging types, but this is more than just a roid rage. This was like full on high. <laughs> My experience ends with the after school specials. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bow to you out on this one, Rose. Well, he just he has had like a euphoria to him that I that I seems consistent with like sort of your upper type drugs. He was a little scattered too. Like he kept saying, Yeah, 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 yeah. As you do when you're on drugs. It felt, I mean, it did have a lot of real attic behavior but it also had some of the like this is cartoony 
this is what we think uh, people on drugs act like. Like the hair, you start using drugs and suddenly you have you get gel, you get product. So is this the scene where he's like, no, you listen, Jack. You've yeah. never respected me. Yeah. Is that just the drugs or is that like his inhibitions lowering and him sort of saying what he really feels? Well, isn't that what drugs do? I mean, yeah, alcohol I mean, does. His eyes look dilated too. He did open his eyes really wide. Yeah, he looks mouthed out. I'm telling you. I like that he tried to convince them that he was doing research. <laughs> How many times have you heard? I mean, I've never had this case, but pornography perps say. Um, I was just doing research and they accidentally downloaded child porn. Yeah. I was doing research for a book and they have like 10 gigs of child pornography. You're just like, yeah, no. So Daniel and O'Neill kind of get into it. O'Neill takes issue with how long this has taken to get them released. Daniel blows up at O'Neill and says he has everything under control, Jack. And the rest of SG-1 look worried. And this is also where we find out that Shayla wants to marry Daniel. And isn't this a scene where O'Neill says we're dying down here? And Daniel doesn't seem to give a shit at all. He just wants to get back to the sarcophagus. Do more research. Back to the pyramid. Shyla is in her peach shift dress without all those jewels. I do like the costuming. Not so much Daniel, but I like her one dress that she dresses up with that jewel necklace. Yeah, I like the necklace a lot. Daniel's doing something weird with his mouth when the scene first opens up. Did you notice that? Like they caught Shanks doing his, his mouth exercises before the scene started. And why isn't she all drugged out? But um, it, like maybe she doesn't use as heavily. But that's why I thought that she didn't use it at all. But maybe she just uses it a little bit, and she's making him use it a lot because she wants him to get addicted. Well, she says that it hasn't been working so much on her dad anymore, and he's starting to decline, and that she will probably become queen soon. Daniel says he can help her out to mine the Nakwada and keep the gold away. Shyla starts to look a little worried and she asks whether he will still help her even though she used his friends against him. So she's starting to reveal to him that she kind of knew she was manipulating him. Daniel says, oh yeah, that, his friends, forgot about that. Daniel wants to stay with her because he's never felt better than right here. And they look into each other's eyes. <laughs> so at this point, is Sheree like a distant memory to him because he's feeling so good from the sarcophagus. I think so, because later on in the episode, it's almost like Daniel forgets her name because he takes a couple of seconds to say it. I mean, for someone whose only goal in life is to find his wife, she kind of gets kicked to the wayside pretty easily here. But isn't, I mean, isn't that true of drugs? That's true. I think this is addiction, right? I think you're right. It's like, it's not drugs are bad. It's addiction sucks. And when you get hooked on something, your primary goal in life is to get access to the drugs. It's, it's everything else becomes less important. So let me ask you a question. Do you think Carter or O'Neill, would they have experienced the same reaction if they had been through the sarcophagus this many times? I think O'Neill would have, but I don't think Carter would have. I think the next scene, we find out that she's actually even having full-on visions from Jolinar telling her about the sarcophagus. And I also think that she's more cautious. We remember O'Neill ate that roofie pizza. 
right? That's right. Yeah. So I think he would be, he would succumb to the sarcophagus's addictive qualities. So it's not the case that Daniel is just more susceptible to the soul-sucking sarcophagus? This is in line with Daniel's constant death wish because there's only like three ways to end being addicted to drugs. You get sober, you go to prison, or you die. And Daniel is always on a constant stream of wanting to die, right? So this absolutely fits. I don't know. I think I think addiction gets all of them. I think Daniel may have been more susceptible to it because he's a head case. But I think addiction will take anybody down that kind of road. So hasn't Daniel already used the sarcophagus twice already? Once in the movie and then once in the season finale? He was dying both of those times. So but how long does he have to wait for the soul sucking attributes to kind of dissolve? I mean, first of all, I think is if you're going in injured, it doesn't suck your soul because it's fixing you. But also like a use here and there isn't going to kill you. It's, it's more of the like repeated use over a short period of time. I think it does different things to you depending on how you go in so that the mending of your body doesn't give you this rush because nobody has said that they've gotten this rush after using the sarcophagus. Although even if you're injured, I think if you use it enough, it probably would still start sucking your soul. But I think using it twice over like a two-year period is probably not enough. We do find out later that the Tokra don't use a sarcophagus because it is soul-sucking. It was at this point when Carter was talking about the Kalash. She said that Jolinar, in the vision, Jolinar mentioned that there was uh, something about a Kalash. And Tilk says that's ghouled language for one's soul. I can see where you might equate losing your soul when you are in the midst of addiction, but I don't think that the two things are the same. I don't, I don't think that they necessarily should be equated. Of course, my horror background says you are going to hell. This is making you a demon. This is making you evil. And being addicted to something doesn't make you evil, right? You can, you were still the person that you were before you got addicted. I just don't think that they should be used as parallel ideas. Well, like, let's say Pyrus, who's been using it for 600 years, could he become unaddicted and go back to the person he was before? which who presumably was brave. He killed the Gould. He was trying to save his people and over time became sort of this like quote soulless person. But yeah, like I, I, like the addiction can mimic soullessness in the sense that it seems like you're living for nothing but the drug, but it's really just the addiction. And once you treat the addiction, a person can be who they were again. Could he be who he was again? Or is it too late? I felt like it was this dementia that he was suffering from was probably permanent. There's even dementia that is induced by alcohol and you can't fix it. It literally like shrinks your brain. So if we're assuming that the king is going through the exact same thing, then you can't fix it. The brain tissue is gone. It just didn't sit right with me. That's all. The idea of losing one's soul, you don't get it back, right? When you sell it. You know, we deal with addiction a lot in our job, like a lot, right? And one of the things that draws me to defense work is this idea that nobody's beyond redemption, like as shitty as some stuff you might have done, as shitty as the choices you're making are, there's a path to sort of stop doing harm and to start living in a way that you're accountable and happy and productive. And I've seen that, I mean, we see, I've seen clients 
have years long drug problems, get treatment and do really, really well. And so, yeah, this idea that it takes your soul kind of is the antithesis of that, that you're at, at a certain point, you're hopeless, that you're beyond redemption. And that doesn't seem fair, um, but we aren't talking about a drug. We were talking about this Gould device, but I think the whole point of this episode is to sort of deal with addiction and what it does to a person. And so I think it's useful to draw that comparison. <laughs> back to the pyramid. The guards are leading O'Neill into the great room. Uh, Daniel is sleeping on the throne, but then says, hi, Jack, and then starts laughing like it's a joke. O'Neill tries to sit up while Daniel stares at him intently. Um, O'Neill says that they're dying down there and that Carter uh, is starting to have visions that the sarcophagus will send Daniel to the dark side. Daniel says, we're getting out because he agreed to marry Shyla. First of all, what is going on in this mine? for these days what are the sleeping arrangements <laughs> is this a shippers garden i mean so teal and and uh o'neill are in this mine what is going on in that mine you really think they have the energy no, i don't think they're having like hooking up or anything but i think that he's concerned about her and her visions and i think it's probably cold that night <laughs> they're not doing anything if they're, they're cuddling not- like they did in antarctica Okay, but O'Neill can barely stand up. I don't think he's he's getting anything else up, if you know what I mean. No, I don't think they're doing that. I think they might just be like spooning. More spooning, sure. I don't even think they're spooning because they are dirty. <laughs> they are dirty. Like, stay six feet away from me. I bet you they stink. But they both probably smell the same. So <laughs> are you saying that you go nose blind from mine dirt? Yeah, you probably do. You're either smelling yourself or you're smelling your partner. I mean, does it really matter if you both smell the same? Well, everybody's BO smells different. <laughs> you go nose blind to your own BO, but I don't think you can go nose blind to somebody else's BO. Maybe she likes that like, BO. <laughs> you know, she looks like a girl who likes onions. <laughs> okay. Does that translate <laughs> to liking BO? BO smells like onions. Don't you think so? No, it doesn't. He has a very particular, particular scent. Malika is now smelling her armpits. I did take a shower, so I can't. I was going to go for a run and then take a shower. Okay, before you take your shower after your run, smell your armpits, report back to us what it smells like. I know exactly what my post-run armpits smell like, and I don't think they smell like onions. We cut to later in the day, Shyla is helping Pyrus into the sarcophagus. She tells him that she has to let Daniel go, but he'll come back to her because he can't live without her anymore. This indicates she got him addicted on purpose. She knew that was her way of ensuring he'd come back and he'd, or he'd stay and then come back. So that was very calculating. I think she knows that he's coming back for a hit and she can just be the hanger on. Yeah, this is a very unhealthy codependent relationship built on drug use. So the next scene, we are outside in front of the Stargate. It's either sunset or sunrise. The lighting was was quite nice, I noticed. Yeah. Shyla is telling SG-1 that her father was once a great man, but now he lives only to see her married. She apologizes to SG-1 for their treatment. Teal'c is listening very thoughtfully. Carter is nodding her head, but O'Neill is not having any of this. O'Neill says, yeah, thanks. I thought O'Neill, similar to the to um, prisoners, I thought his comic timing in this episode was spot on. The one part of this scene that really gets me, it gets me every time, is that little bit of dirt that's under O'Neill's nose. <laughs> it's just so 
comically placed right there and his facial expressions with this dirt it's just he's like acting to that dirt it's it's awesome it's like a like a twisty mustache of dirt (laughs) foghorn leghorn mustache of dirt it was awesome (laughs) su1 turns to leave but daniel first has to eat her face off in this very very long and very active kiss. Like there was a lot of tongues moving around in there. Yeah. <laughs> this was passionate. This was a passionate kiss. It looked like two addicts kissing. I don't know. I, I don't feel any kind of actual affection between these two people. I feel like this is each of them making out with their drug. No affection, but definitely a very aggressive, yeah, like an aggressive passion, I would say. Like a Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton kiss. Yeah, that kind of thing. Or like a Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox kiss. Shyla looks very pleased. And Daniel says that he will be back. All right, they go through the Stargate. They're walking down the ramp and they see Hammond. And Hammond is looking at how dirty they are. And Tilk made some friends. Carter brought back some Naquita. And uh, Daniel got engaged. And O'Neill's going to hit the showers. I'm sure Hammond's like, go hit the showers. <laughs> you guys stay. Oh, God. Yeah, they probably reek. All right, we cut to the infirmary. Daniel is doing his strung out self behavior. He's undergoing more tests because he was in the sarcophagus so long. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I bet Sam was like, you need to check out Daniel. He used that thing a lot and it's not good. So we cut to Carter's lab. And this is when the episode starts to get really serious. Yeah. (laughs) No more cartoon anymore because Daniel is experiencing withdrawal symptoms from the sarcophagus. Uh, he thinks it was a big mistake to leave Shyla. Carter reminds him that he had that wife. Oh yeah, what's her name? Shyla. I swear, Daniel takes like a good two seconds to think of her name. You mean Sheree? Sheree, yeah. What did I, I say? Think, Shyla. I think it was appropriate that you're like, oh yeah, my wife Shyla. I have to go back to her. Carter's like, you are married, and he's like, I had a wife. If I even find her again, will she still be the same? Like. What the fuck? You know, how long is he supposed to wait? We put up with this junk from him for, uh, what, a season and a half? And now he's just like, eh, uh, I want to have sister wives or be a polygamist. I don't care anymore. Whoever that lady is. Carter tries to reason with them. She tells him that the sarcophagus is no good. But Daniel does not see the problem here. Carter tells him it looks like you need a fix. Explaining the episode the theme of the episode to the viewers, unless they've completely missed it. Daniel wants to study the sarcophagus. Cutter says Shyla used SG-1 to get Daniel addicted. And uh, Daniel says something truly awful to Cutter. Like if I were Cutter, I would have picked him up and threw him across the room. He tells her that she's never been in love before, which we all know is just complete false, right? Yes. I mean, granted her history of relationships hasn't been like stellar. Yeah. <laughs> That we know of and that we shall see. And then he breaks some of her stuff and then, you know, trounces off. In Hammond's office, Carter is telling Hammond that Daniel should be confined because he's showing signs of major withdrawal. Daniel comes in and submits his letter of resignation. O'Neill yells, denied. And then Daniel collapses. And then they strap him to the, then he's doing his whole like jonesing while strapped to the gurney. And then Daniel starts making more moans and groans. He starts thrashing about saying, you're killing me. 
O'Teal tries to calm him down, but Daniel pushes him away. And then O'Neill takes like this running tackle onto Daniel and almost goes head over the, the gurney. Oh, Teal'c mentions, maybe we should take him back to sarcophagus. What a great idea, Teal'c. And Carter <laughs> says, no, the sarcophagus will not help them anymore. We only need to wait. You know, I get that they're treating this like drug addiction and they're treating this like withdrawal, but I don't think they know enough about it to like say, if he, if he just muscles through, he'll be fine. Right. Like it is still alien technology. I'm like, maybe you just want to have that sarcophagus on hand. I mean, first of all, people do die from withdrawal. It does happen. It's like, that's why you often have to do a tapered withdrawal. You know, also this was the nineties where I don't think they believed in tapered withdrawal or medical withdrawal. I think they, there was this like moral rightness of cold Turkey, which really isn't the best way in general and has, has really harmed people. So that part of it was like, like, why aren't they doing that? Like they're in a medical facility. This is acting like a narcotic. Why don't you try the way you would treat somebody who's in withdrawal from a narcotic, at least try it, see if it helps. Right. And second of all, you don't like, he might die. You don't know that he won't die. So they're watching Daniel kind of struggle with his bonds over the monitor. Fraser says she has to give him another dose of sedative. Uh, she goes in there and she checks his pupils. And that's when Daniel breaks out of his bonds and throws her across the room. And then he starts thrashing on the, the guard, like really starts hitting him. He and, beat him up. That was like savage. Yeah, pretty savage. He takes his gun. We find out later. Yeah, this is really, again, very lax security measures. Uh, they had yeah. a guard in that room. Oh, yeah, O'Neill is not known to look at a computer or use one ever, but apparently he's just staring intently at this computer screen while on the video monitor, you know, Fraser's getting thrashed about. O'Neill finally notices what's going on because he sees an empty bed where Daniel should be. He runs out. He sees Fraser. She says she'll be okay. O'Neill follows Daniel to a supply closet. And he looks crazed. His hair is all crazy. His eyes are like huge, like mm-hmm. dinner plates. His skin is all mottled too. I thought they did a really good job with this. I think he looked like he was going through some shit. Shanks really played this up. O'Neill walks inside the closet and suddenly Daniel fires a gun at the light. So he shoots out the light. At some point, they, they finally do start fighting. They thrash about against the supplies and make a huge mess. Daniel finally gets the bead on O'Neill with the gun. O'Neill tells Daniel that he knows what this is. He knows what it's like and he can get through it. Daniel then breaks down, essentially drops the gun and O'Neill and Daniel embrace. I'm sure you guys have thoughts, but my, one of my initial questions was, has O'Neill been through something similar? I think so. I think he's saying that he, that he has. I mean, he drinks a lot. <laughs> we do know that. I'm sure in the military, they drug test you so you couldn't be using illicit drugs, but I think O'Neill has a really dark past. I don't think he got counseling after his son shot himself. I think he found his therapy at the bottom of a bottle, if not something stronger. O'Neill has, you know, he's had a lot of broken bones and I'm guessing he was prescribed opiates at some point, painkillers for those broken bones. Like it could have been like prescription medication that he got addicted on. The shit they had in the 90s was nowhere near as good as the shit they have now. Like they didn't have oxycodone then. Nope. And you like if you uh, your top notch pain pillar is probably morphine, which I guess people did get addicted to. So then what do we think about this relationship? I love this scene. I love this scene. I like Shanks's acting here. This episode is a little strange in that it's really only half about the planet. Usually the whole episode's about the planet. Then you come back here 
and you know something's up with Daniel and you're like, is he going to try to escape, go back to the planet? How is this going to wrap up? And this scene sort of turns him from the villain to like back to Daniel again, right? Like he's not evil. He's just th- literally feels like he's dying. And withdrawal will make you feel like that, right? You feel like you're fucking dying and you don't, and you can't think straight and you don't know what's going on. And O'Neill like sort of met him where he was at and was able to sort of bring him down from that ledge and it reinforced their really deep friendship. Is it realistic? Do you need more than just this one scene? Like, is this all it takes to to break the cycle of addiction? I, mean, I know this is a television show, but still, it, it seemed a little, is it a little too easy? Well, I didn't see this as like breaking the addiction. I think this is the Daniel hitting rock bottom. So it, this is the point where he's now giving into the process of recovery, which is long and hard. That That sort of got through to him that what he's feeling isn't people trying to kill him. It's his body going through addiction. Well, I would imagine there would also be episodes later on of of relapse too, right? I mean, if this truly is the addiction that we know. When he said everybody wanted to go back to the planet and there was a sarcophagus there, I was sure that he was going to crawl back in because it's not like you just one minute you're being held by your best friend and you're like, okay, I'm cured. It just seems like an unnecessary risk. Yeah, I wouldn't, or, or go with an escort. Like, yeah, I would not have let him. Because, I mean, not everyone relapses. There, There is recovery without relapse. And, and like, it's not like Daniel's sort of a natural drug addict. Like, I think he got addicted in this particular circumstance, but some people are able to maintain their sobriety. My personal feeling is he does sort of relapse in other ways as through his choices over the next few seasons. But sending him back alone was a really bad call. Oh, you think he was alone? I think they went with him, but they just probably waited outside so they could have. That's like going into this room with a bag full of heroin and we'll just stay outside and hope you don't use it. Like, (laughs) I think so. They wanted to give him and Shyla another interlude. Well, can't they have an interlude in a different room? (laughs) There's no sarcophagus. Daniel tells Shyla that her people need her and that she cannot use a sarcophagus. He also tells her that she won't be alone. So he intends to come back and see her. But he never actually tells her that she has to destroy the sarcophagus. He just says she can't use it anymore. So it seems like it's her decision to shoot it with a staff weapon. She gives it up pretty fast. That's why I think she hasn't used the sarcophagus. No, I think she has. And I'm I'm like, I mean, maybe had this been Pyrus, I think it's clear that had he gone through withdrawal, he would have died, right? He would have made it through. He's too old and his body is too used to it. How do we know that she's not going to die? And then then he's on the hook for killing their queen, right? Like, I just don't think they know enough about how the sarcophagus affects your physiology to say, destroy it and cut off your safety net if her withdrawal starts going south. Yeah, but I think I think the show needed to get rid of the sarcophagus. I think Malika made that point in a previous episode. We SG one cannot have a working sarcophagus, so she destroys it and they embrace. Still doesn't tell her he's married. Well, he wants to leave his options open just in case. <laughs> she did have a really nice blowout. <laughs> <laughs> I did like her hair. I will say, awesome. When she pulled that cloak off at the very beginning, you're just like just come out of dry bar <laughs> oh my god i liked that they made this attempt at dealing with drug addiction in a way that really humanizes the addict which i think especially in this era of television was pretty rare in this era of television and this era of war on drugs and super predators like humanizing addiction was not something you found often so i do think that was a made it almost ahead of its time in some ways and you don't say that about stargate too often <laughs> 
I think it was about this time when Star Trek was starting to come out with these like very special episodes. Like they did one that was about AIDS. Obviously didn't have AIDS in the Star Trek episode, but it was a subject that reminded you of the AIDS epidemic having to do with Vulcans, I think, and some kind of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Enterprise did that. Yeah, Enterprise. And it it was very obvious that it was a special episode. And I... I feel that with this episode, especially when Shank's performance is so much like an addict. Like, I almost wish that there had been more of a sci-fi bent to his performance because then it wouldn't it wouldn't keep slapping me in the face with the reminder that this is a special episode it felt like someone just told shanks just pretend to be an addict the whole time and he did and he did it's like never mind that it's just a it's a sarcophagus and not like meth it felt like somebody in the writer's room or shanks himself had some kind of experience And so like 75% of the performance was from a real place and 25% was like cartoonish addiction. I I agree. I think that the withdrawal part felt really real to me and really raw. And the part where he's high felt a little more cartoonish. So every episode we assign a rating, one chevron if we didn't like it, or zero chevrons, to seven chevrons, eight chevrons if we think it was something extra special. Rose, <laughs> what is your rate? I swear I always pick on you. Rose, what is your rating? My rating for this episode is a five. That scene between Daniel and Jack really just hits it home for me. I, I think this episode does a great job of furthering both Daniel's character and Daniel and Jack's relationship. And to me, Stargate's all about the relationships and the character development. And this episode does a good job with both the story. I don't, you know, I, it's almost secondary to me compared to that part of it. So I'll give it a five. Despite what I said earlier, I actually do like this episode. It seems like Daniel is either played as a geek or a heartthrob, or sometimes a geeky heartthrob. Uh, But overall, there doesn't seem to be much dimension with his character, talking about the first two seasons. So I like an episode that hints at something a little deeper. So I would give it five chevrons as well. So it's not that I don't like this episode. It just feels uneven like the first half of the episode I didn't know where we were going at all so the first part of the episode I give it like a three and then Michael Shanks really pulls it out and did a really great job of writing the addiction writing what it's like to actually be high and jonesing for your next high but because you guys both gave it five I'll give it a four I know that it furthers Daniel's character and it furthers the relationship between Daniel and O'Neill, but it also still has a little bit of a hint of filler because I can definitely see the next episode, none of this stuff coming up. This not changing anything. A lot of sci-fi shows around this time were not serialized. So, and they were very episodic so that you could just turn it on and watch it without having to know the backstory. So yeah, you're right. There isn't going to be a lot of fallout from this in the next episode. There isn't. That's absolutely true, right? And Star Trek was the same way. But I do think in Stargate, the actors, and I really think it's the actors, did a really good job of building on the relationships and the character development, even when the stories don't relate back. Over time, the the characters just get so much richer because they have all this history, even if you don't really see them processing it. So if this episode were shown today, how would it be different? I would hope that there would be more character development and that they wouldn't waste the first 20 minutes 
we could have gotten into Daniel's situation faster. They would probably have like an addiction expert as a consultant, I would think, I would hope. Yeah, I think so. I think the focus would have been more on the recovery or it would have been like a two episode arc or something where you get the the whole episode about the falling down into the addiction part and then the recovery part. So do you think this was a, a sophisticated, progressive way of handling addiction? I, I do think it was sophisticated. I mean, we're past the like 80s, just say no. I'm trying to remember this time, but like AIDS was a big thing and intravenous drug use and how it relates to AIDS was a big thing. And I, and I think that I feel like the messaging was still, was still very moralistic about drugs, right? It was like, don't do drugs. And if you do drugs, you're bad. And the sentences for drug use are still really, really long, even on the state level, a lot of racial disparities. And I, I just don't think there was a lot of mainstream, at least in a mainstream level, a lot of understanding about what addiction is, how it works. Like now there's a lot of like methadone and um, suboxone and sort of more tools, more approaching addiction, like a disease, right? Like a mental illness and a physical disease and treating it like that. And there's a lot more successful outcomes because of that. And that wasn't that understanding back then. So given that, I do think it was kind of forward thinking in that it sort of treated this like a medical condition um, and treated him like a, a human being going through a really difficult thing. If it was then now, it would be harm reduction and they would let him <laughs> microdose the, the sarcophagus. <laughs> So thank you so much for listening to us. The next episode is episode six of season two, Thor's Chariot. Hopefully you will join us. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Well, you could you say bye? Bye bye. <laughs> I did. I did. Just Rose and I said it at the same time. I have seen uh, after school special and that was about <laughs> was it Ben Affleck who was in that after school special where he had, was having road roid rage what you think I need steroids to kick your fucking ass like us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform even if you don't like us you can still like and subscribe follow us on Instagram and Facebook at probing the wormhole on Twitter at probing wormhole also visit us on our website probing the wormhole.com thank you